Now, podcasting to Ottawa Senator fans around the world. Around the world. It's the Sins Nation Podcast. From praising Alfie to Brady Kachuk and everything in between. If it matters to Sins fans, we're talking about it right here. And now, here's Steve Warren. All right, thank you, Brock Mantooth. Coming up today as we face the nation, we'll find out a little bit about DJ Smith. Just finished up his rookie year as NHL head coach. Nothing about DJ the hockey coach, but all about DJ Smith, the guy. The Sen season is basically all but over. 11 games left to play in the regular season, but the NHL's moving on. Focus now on the 24-team playoffs. Uh, Hubert Labrie is Defenseman of the Year in Belleville as they come up with their team awards. What's that say about guys like Max Lajoie, maybe to a lesser degree Christian Yaros? Three-on-three professional hockey, this day in history, so much more coming up today on the Sens Nation podcast. Greg, how are you today, buddy? I'm very well, Stephen. How are you? I am just fine here on episode number 13, and it got me thinking about senators who wore the number 13 in the past. There haven't been a lot of big names. Care to hazard any guesses as to who's worn 13 for the Sens? I'm thinking Nick Paul wears it now, right? That's right. Yeah. The very first was Jamie Baker, then Ted Drury wore it after... Vinnie Prospel, Peter Shaslevy, then Peter Regan. Now, Nick Paul, as you mentioned, has it these days. Who's your greatest number 13 among Ottawa Senators? Jamie Baker did did uh, had a real nice season here and was an important part of the early day there. He only really played one season here, right? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, Regan was a washout. Shaslevy was a washout. Skilled guys, but never really did much. Maybe Prospel. Was he probably, probably put up the best stats of anybody? Yeah, I think Prosper will be your guy. Nick Paul will probably eventually be the guy, but at this moment in time, as we record this, I think uh, Vaclav, uh, Vinny, whatever the hell he wants to call himself, would be my number one, number thirteen. Yeah, that guy. You know, here's a little known. He was on the roster of the Buffalo Sabers the year that the Sens beat them, and the, we talk about it often here. The Alfie goal, Prosper was a member of that Buffalo Sabers team. Oh. Very cool. Yeah. He was a scratch that night, but injury of some sorts. Right. Okay, let's get into some uh, some things going on right now. And something as we're recording this uh, came out last night. It's an NHL memo that went out to all teams uh, on instructions for moving to Phase 2. It's all voluntary. A maximum of six players are going to be allowed in club facilities at one time. Some of the other details we're getting, players have to stay six feet apart. All on-ice drills are to be non-contact. No fitness testing permitted. Uh, players and club staff must administer a temperature and symptom check every day upon arrival. Um, the memo also says players from other clubs who are residing in the area can have access to the facilities in that area. For example, and Bruce Garriott pointed this out, Claude Giroux of the Flyers could end up going to Canadian Tire Center. Only trouble is the ice has been taken out. So that's somewhat <laughs> problematic. And there's some other details as well. The target date is early June, but to me it sounds like that's a bit of a pipe dream to get all that in place. Um, we are in weird times, are we not? <laughs> well, yeah. Not to mention, of course, that the borders are closed, right? The Canada-U.S. border closure was extended, yep. but apparently these players are, are exempt 
I don't know exactly what they did to make that happen, but uh, but they are exempt from that and will be allowed to cross the border, at least the Canada-U.S. border. I'm not sure how you get in from Europe, because uh, <laughs> as far as I know, you can't do that right now. Well, I know that Homeland Security in the States did open up the borders to any European athletes. This is just a day or two ago. Uh, they can come in freely. And uh, it's more, it's to the point of, and the quote from Homeland Security was something along the lines of, sports is just really important to the national psyche and pride. And so they're making exceptions, basically, for these European players who are coming over. I can see a backlash. There's there's enough, uh, yeah, there's enough of wing nuts out there right now. I could see there being a backlash to this with these mamby-pamby overpaid athletes getting all these uh, special exemptions to do these things. It could get ugly there. Yeah. Meanwhile, the NHL uh, moves on without those bottom seven teams. It sounds like, based on the vote that the NHLPA had this week, that they're going to go with a 24-team playoffs, and uh, that means the Sen season is now basically over. With 11 games to play, they will not be played uh, in all likelihood. Um, and so you got Buffalo, Jersey, Anaheim, L.A., San Jose, and Detroit. They'll be joining the Sens in a very, very long offseason, like nine months worth, potentially, hearing December as a possibility for next year. Yeah, like you said nine months to me, and I thought, nine months? It's it's May. And then I went, oh, yeah, they haven't done anything for three months already or whatever yeah. it is, right? Yeah. That's crazy, huh? Totally. Like what kind of shape are those people going to be in, especially the older guys? Older guys, you know, who are looking to go to a training camp and maybe give it one last kick at the can. Like, how are they going to feel by December when it's time to report? Yeah, the Sens have two of the seven oldest guys in the NHL. Checking in at number six, Craig Anderson, who's, oh, by the way, on our birthday list this week, turned 39. And Ron Hainsey, I think is 38, I want to say. So you wonder about those guys because you go back to 2005, for example, you know, that was a year where they wiped out the entire season and you had just a list of Hall of Famers who all basically couldn't return. I mean, you know, Brett Hull, Adam Oates, it's a big, long list. I don't have it in front of me right now. Uh, the same could be said of uh, 2012, even though that was a little different story. But it took kind of took the wind out of the sails of some of the older guys. And, and right now you've got, like I say, Anderson Hainsey. You look at Joe Thornton, Dustin Brown, Ryan Miller. These are all older guys who are from these teams that won't be in the playoffs, and you wonder what their future will be. Yeah, it's like the older you get, the tougher it is to train in the offseason as rigorously as you would have when you were younger. Not just age, but also your life situation. You've got, uh, you know, most of them would have wife and kids by now, so they've got other things going on in their world, and training in the offseason is not as much of a priority as it is when you are younger. And the longer that stretches out, the longer you don't train, the more out of shape you get and the more difficult it is to say, hey, it's time to get ready. In this case, I don't know, they start getting ready in September, October yeah. for a December training camp. That's uh, that's asking a lot of an older body. Certainly Bobby Ryan kind of is what he is at this stage of the game, but uh, there's still a little part of me that's hoping that you know, his recovery from the things he was going through over the last uh, well, a couple of years, probably. Um, maybe those are behind him, and maybe that'll mean that he's a better player moving forward as a result of all that. But I can't help but look at, uh, you know, the fact that he will have only played eight games 
in 13 months. And he'll be <laughs> almost 34 by the time December rolls around. And I've never felt like that guy has been you know, just a bear in the gym or anything like that. Maybe he is. I could be wrong. Maybe the hardest worker going. But just based on watching the play on the ice, um, I'd worry about a guy like that. I'm already worried about a guy like that, but even more so with so much time left in that deal. Well, I'd, I'd like to think that part of his turnaround, uh, resurrection, uh, whatever you want to call it, I'd like to think that part of that was a was a renewed commitment to the game and to looking after himself and and possibly you know a, a, a regimen has now come into his life and uh maybe he'll be okay with this maybe he'll be all right that, a, that the time off won't affect him as negatively as we think it will you'll always have that hat trick night that was one of the i think that <laughs> yeah. might that might be the highlight of the season that is now just uh officially wrapped up there's a poll out right now somewhere online or they're a fan poll on uh, the most exciting moments or biggest moments of the season or whatever. And it's it's on the short list. I know that. As it should be, for sure. Yeah. Um, with the Sens basically wrapping up now, uh, that means DJ Smith's first year in the NHL as a head coach has come to a close. He comes in with a, well, the second worst record in the NHL with a record of 25, 34, and 12. Obviously, it's a case of you're at the poker table, here's your hand, and you're not, oh, geez, what do I do with this? Um, and that's the reality of it. You know, a head coach is only as good as what he is handed as far as a roster. But, you know, that in mind, what do you think of DJ Smith's first year in the NHL? Quite happy with it. I think the number one thing, and probably his number one goal when he came in, was to establish a culture to create an atmosphere or a situation where players are are accountable in a different way than maybe they have been in the past. Expectations, not necessarily for team success, but expectations for how they would carry themselves and how they would train and how they would play. Uh, I think most of those were met. Uh, I, I think he should be proud of himself, and I think the organization is is probably thrilled with that sort of turnaround that's happened there amongst the attitude, I guess, of the players and the outlook for the future based on, based on his... Uh, implementation of some sort of standards of of play and standards of commitment expected from these players likability factor i think off the charts oh yeah his his communication you can see it you know it's like you can tell right right away when you spend any time with any with a guy or listen to him speak you can see natural leader of men comes immediately to mind and talks like a player because he was so recently a player himself so he kind of gets that that patter that uh you know talk in the talk um, yeah, and, and I think that's a, a good thing because his predecessor, I mean, if you listen to Chris Neal talk about Guy Boucher uh, right around the time of, of his leaving town, uh, he didn't have a whole lot to say about the communication level. Now, Chris Neal, I'm sure, you know, was a little annoyed with uh, the lack of usage that he had under Guy Boucher in his final days, but he was very clear that he felt like it was a real closed door policy when it came to the player's input on what was going on. It was like, Neil kind of said, and I'm paraphrasing a little, that I, we've, been in, we've been playing hockey for a long time at a high level. I think we maybe uh, have something to offer. And too much of the time, it was felt like, according to Chris Neal, that uh, it was really a one-way street in the communication department under Guy Boucher. Just the opposite, it seems anyway, under DJ Smith. Oh, yeah, it's a 180-degree turn. It's If you want to simplify it to its basic level, it's old school versus new school. 
Yeah. Uh, it's it, in every way, how they practice, how they prepare, how he communicates. The input from players is different. The expectation, again, is it makes a difference too, right? The expe- it's, it's easier to be a nicer guy when the expectations are different. Let's at least, if you want to have some sort of argument in favor of Boucher, the expectations upon the teams that Boucher coached were completely different than the expectations upon the teams that Smith is coaching. So that probably factors into it. But having said that, he is still a 180-degree difference from Boucher in all other aspects of, of his coaching style and philosophy. It's It's been kind of an interesting run of coaches and and sort of the, the structure in Ottawa because there always seems to be an heir apparent all loaded up right behind the guy that's running the bench. You know, I think of Paul McLean, uh, he had Dave Cameron. Uh, then I think about Guy Boucher, he had Mark Crawford. Now with uh, the case of DJ Smith, he's got a couple of guys who can potentially step in. They've been NHL head coaches in uh, Davis Payne and Jack Capuano. Uh, that may, I, I don't know exactly uh, you know, if those were handpicked by him or if the team had a hand in it. I, don't, I honestly don't know offhand. But what do you think about that? Like, if you're you've you've been a head coach for for a long time at a high level of hockey, would you be good with that? Like, okay, I've got this great uh, fountain of knowledge here to help me out, or would you be kind of looking over your shoulder, making you know, kind of feeling uncomfortable about that situation? Well, it comes down to your own personal uh, personality, I guess. How confident you are in right. in your abilities. I've been one who's always wanted people around me who are going to offer things and and have insight and maybe even question me from time to time. I I get that sense from DJ Smith. He wants good people who know what they're doing, not yes men, not flunkies. Not to say that, you know, most NHL teams aren't going to have flunkies on the bench, but there's certain people who are, that guy's an assistant coach. He's never going to be a head coach. Like, I don't think Jacques Martin ever worried for one minute that Perry Pern was going to replace him as head coach. Right. Right? Excellent coach, though. In the case of these two guys, with NHL experience, they bring in a wealth of knowledge. And in the case of Smith, he'd never coached in the league. So there's a whole new uh, regime or a whole new way about going about doing things that he's never had to worry about before. Um, so having these two guys on staff help in that way, um, I think it also helps that, oh man, that the, the, the splitting of duties, like look how much the special teams, the PK improved eventually, uh, under Capuano coming in here and running that stuff. I, it just, it benefited this team overall to have experienced, knowledgeable guys on the bench and part of the staff with Smith. And, and I don't think he's even slightly nervous about these guys being the next head coach and waiting. Clearly, expectations will be ramped up for next season because, uh, you know, prospects are getting a little older. Um, you know, the team's coming together. They might, they might get at least one guy from this year's draft that'll be able to contribute right away. That's how good their draft class is looking. And so uh, we'll see how he moves, uh, how he fares as we move forward and, and pressure is ratcheted up. Uh, before we get away from the DJ Smith topic. Uh, I wanted to play back a little bit of this, finding out a little bit more about DJ Smith. You want to know, Greg, things like what's this guy's favorite movie or book or TV show, don't you? <laughs> huh? That kind of stuff. That's important stuff, baby. Yeah, that's important. Damn straight. 
Uh, <laughs> so let's get to it. DJ Smith, a little trivia about the Sens head coach. And we began with his favorite movie. Whew. You know what? It was probably always been uh, it was slap shot, but I'm going to go with Major League. Solid. Favorite TV show? Favorite TV show? I don't watch a ton of TV anymore. It, you know what? And it's going to shock people when I played. I watch Days of Our Lives every day. Really? Yeah, hockey players, <laughs> one to two. One to two for 20 years. <laughs> Young and the Restless was big as well with a lot of guys, for sure. Um, we're enjoying a nice deli sandwich right now. Your wife was saying you're a big Italian food guy. Maybe talk a little bit about place to eat, uh, like a favorite kind of food. Well, for sure, it's uh, it's these kind of places. There's an Italian bakery back home in Windsor. I found one in Toronto, and it looks like I found one here. Um, I, I, I like the big uh, uh, crusty bread with the uh, Genoa salami, so if we can find one of those, I'll be set. Last book you read? Uh, Bob Probert's biography. How was it? It was outstanding. You know what? Uh, Bob Probert is a uh, very interesting life. He had a hard life. Um, but uh, any kid in Windsor grew up kind of watching Bob uh, being, you know, the toughest guy in the NHL. And, and you know, he went through some trials and tribulations off the, off the ice. But uh, it was very interesting. Your first car and your best memory associated with it? Well, my first car, it was my dad's pickup truck. They owned a construction company, and it was I, it was like a pickup truck that was in the back that no one used, and I had the uh, ability to use it. But after that, it was a green neon that uh, took a lot of abuse. And, uh, you know, one of those things I didn't tell anyone, the brakes were going, and, you know, eventually uh, my, my uh, stepfather came to me and said, you know, the brakes are going. I, I kind of figured them they were squeaking for six weeks, but as a young kid, you just don't got time to stop. Tell me about the worst job you ever had, non-hockey related. Well, I I, uh, I tell people this all the time. I, uh, it was actually my grandfather that owned the construction company, so they put me to work uh, fairly young. I was in grade eight or grade nine, um, but uh, and eventually, when I was playing in the OHL, I, I was actually made my way up to to run the backhoe, and I'd be working. Uh, till noon and then go to practice at like 3 o'clock. Pe- players don't believe when I, when I say it, but the worst job by far ever had, I was the uh, the stop slow sign guy there uh, at, a, at a job site and I stood there for uh, like 10 hours straight of, you know, stop and, and stop and go. The flag man they called it. And I was, that was by far, I called my grandfather at the end of the night, I said I'll do anything. Dig ditches. I'll never ever do that again. For a person like me likes to stay on the move, it was absolutely a killer. Let's get you in a better headspace then. Maybe a favorite memory of your childhood. It can be hockey. It can be something else. Um, you know what? Uh, it's probably baseball. I just like to compete so much. Um, you know, when I uh, when I played baseball, we competed to try and, uh, uh, you know, you try and get to the Little League World Series. We never got anywhere close to that. Um, but they would chalk up the lines and the people would come out and they'd get the microphones out. And uh, you'd go down to a place called Optimus Park in Windsor. And, uh, you know, all the best teams in town would compete to try and get to the Ontarios and then the Canadians. So uh, every year in uh, in mid-August or, or late or early August, August, um, you know, you'd get prepped up and, and just that thought of maybe one day having the chance to go to Williamsport, Pennsylvania as a, as a kid and, and stand in there and play is, uh, you know, starting from Windsor, Ontario, thinking in the big picture, uh, the rush was unbelievable. I mean, I never got there, uh, but it, it's kind of carried with me in hockey. Who beyond yourself, who did all the work, who is most responsible for helping you get here? Well, I, I got to say it's my parents for sure. Um, my my mom and dad, uh, my dad who's passed away, uh, drove me everywhere. Uh, just 
endless dedication between both of them to taking me to tournaments to uh, um, you know when I when when the going got tough as a coach and they weren't paying you very much at the start you know watching watching your kids so you could coach and do things uh, the endless amount of time that uh, your family puts up and sticks with you and cheers for whatever team you're coaching uh, so I'd have to say my parents what's your dad's name my dad's name's Dennis uh, you know they call me DJ I'm Dennis uh, Dennis Joseph he was Dennis Warren I passed away at 60 of leukemia but uh, uh, he had an unbelievable personality one-liners people in Windsor still talk about him so I've taken a lot of his personality at what stage did you take on the name DJ and who gave it to you right from the get-go they called me Dennis and uh, it, it was it was Dennis Jr. DJ and, and they had really had no intention of it and uh, really my entire life it stayed DJ in walking over here, you gave us a few uh, great lines that you heard from other guys over the years. Um, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, in hockey, like I said, I and I and you'll hear me constantly. I go back to uh, Lou Lamorello, and it's just um, you know the way you treat people. Um, you re- don't realize it when you're young and you kind of just do whatever you have to to get by and um, as, as you get a little older and you get in, uh, you realize respect is a big part of it. Um, you know, taking care of each other in the hockey world is part of it. You want to be competitive, but also you have to be respectful. And um, Lou Lamorello did did all those things for me. Uh, you know, made sure you always were dressed the right way. Made sure you shaved every day. You know, where in junior hockey, I just kind of, you know, you went with the flow. And it was invaluable to work under a man like that uh, for my time. Are you a social media guy? And how do you shut out distraction and stay focused what you need to stay focused on? So many people say that they don't read it, but they do. I really don't. I don't have Twitter. I, I, the only thing, uh, you know, I'll go on and check TSN uh, uh, and, and check the, the highlights or, or whatever it is. So for me, uh, I don't read the criticism. Even if they do, I realize I, I know what I, I believe in myself enough to, to just keep doing what you're doing. And in a, in a Canadian market, the fans are so passionate and they just want their team to win and I get it Um, so there's no time to be uh, filtering all the negativity you just got to keep pushing on what energizes DJ Smith and what drains DJ Smith uh Energize It's just life. Getting up every day uh, and being able to do something important. Uh, I don't look at hockey as a job. I'm one of the, I'm the luckiest person in the world to be able to to make a living doing the one thing that I absolutely love, uh, and, and the opportunity to make kids better. That sometimes um, you know maybe wouldn't have had a chance if you didn't push them over the edge. Uh, so the opportunity to get up every day and and teach people and do something you love absolutely energizes me. And negative people is the absolute drainer for me uh, and, and I and I spot them like like a color red on a wall uh, and and I could see a guy that or or, or or woman that that just looks on the negative side of everything and and life's too short uh, I'm only 42 years old and I remember uh, like it was yesterday I was eight and before you know it, I'm gonna be 65 so I'm not gonna waste another day of my life uh, worrying about what goes bad okay so there's a little get to know DJ Smith action. Moving on now, we hardly knew Mikhail Bodker. And before the season was even officially declared dead for the Sens, he signed on with Switzerland about a week ago, which I found interesting, Greg, in that you don't often see it. But maybe that speaks to, because, I mean, if a guy's still under contract, and let's say they resumed the season, and then they had about you know eight guys get injured in a game, you'd probably call on 
Mikhail Bodker to get in there and, and fill out a warm body here. But um, they just said, okay, go ahead and uh, sign on in Switzerland. So technically, um, that's not, it's not really supposed to happen, is it? If eight guys got injured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, Mikhail Bodker's gone. Next. Yeah, like the only the only interesting part out of this, and and you and I have said it, this is just a jumping off point to once again revisit a bad trade. Yeah, the dealing of Mike Hoffman, and uh, that was, I think, in every way, not a panic move, but a we got a we got a you know a media firestorm happening right now, and we want to put it out, and obviously that lessens the value of the player in the moment. But you look at what Hoffman's doing in Florida these days, and the stats are right there. He had to go for sure, but maybe be a little more patient about the removal of the asset and uh, try and get more. Let the let the story die down a little bit, maybe. Uh, but it just felt like, man, they could have got a whole lot more than what they did. They deal uh, Hoffman to San Jose for Mikhail Bodker, Julius Bergman, and a sixth rounder in the upcoming draft in 2020. And that's just all kinds of awful. And and then the scandal for just as a reset for those who uh, you know were under a rock at the time. Um, there was a story at that time breaking about Hoffman's partner and alleged harassment of Eric Carlson's wife. So that's that was a big deal at the time. And obviously was a big factor in why the Sens moved so quickly. A couple things. Did we ever get to the bottom of the whole threatening tweets and messages have we ever heard the final answer i don't believe so okay secondly um at the time when the trade was made and then of course doug wilson flipped hoffman out like an hour later um a big part of it from the senator's side was that they wanted players they didn't want draft picks Mm -hmm. which i find interesting i found it interesting at the time and more so now if you wanted players couldn't you have gotten something better than Mikhail Bodker and a defenseman that you later flipped out anyway? Uh, I don't, I don't get that. I didn't understand it then. I don't understand it now. Why did they not get something better? Just makes no sense. It's got to be part of that is the yard sale mentality, right? Yeah. Um, If you've got something and it's not for sale and somebody wants it, they're going to come in, you know, with top dollar. But if you flip it out onto the front yard and put a sign on it with a Sharpie that says for sale, um, and clearly you don't want it anymore. Well, no one's going to give you top price. And that was sort of where the sends were at because... But the package that came from Florida, could you not have just called Florida Direct? Why, like, why wasn't that a package? Why wasn't that an, an option to the senators at the time? Well, maybe there was that whole thing about still worried about trading in the division, you know, because oh, there was some sort of caveat in a in a deal that would follow. Maybe it was the Carlson deal or something like that. There was punishment involved if San Jose yeah. ended up flipping him back to the division. The East, yeah. All right, changing gears. Since we last convened, the Belleville Senators announced the winners of their team awards for the past season, because if you missed it, the American Hockey League is fully canceled. Rest of the regular season and the playoffs, they said. Bye bye, we're done. So the season is concluded, and the Belleville Sens came out with their team awards. And Josh Norris is the guy, MVP and Rookie of the Year. 
Uh, not uh, not a huge surprise there because uh, he was well over a point a game after, I guess, a compar- comparatively slow start. But the one that grabbed me, and I know you're a big not Josh <laughs> Norris guy. I know you, you'd, you'd love to talk to you about him for about five minutes. No, but, no, uh, it's okay. The defenseman of the year grabbed me. Uh, not having yeah. watched a lot of Belleville Sens games, I would have thought like, okay, who we got down there? Yaros was there for a while, 34 games. Brandstrom down there for the second half of the season. Max Lajoie there all season. It's a guy who played in the NHL over 50 games uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, but it's Hubert Labrie, who is your defenseman of the year. <laughs> a, tw- a 28-year-old career minor leaguer. Played four years with the Gatineau Olympics. And he's your defenseman of the year. Surprise? And as you as you said, he grabbed you. Well, he could grab me in downtown Ottawa, and I still wouldn't know who the hell he was. Yeah. I wonder if... Uh, I think Lajoie is the one that, that I circled there because Yaros was up and down. Lajoie was there all season long, and I would have expected he'd be more in that discussion. Um, but I don't know. Do you think... Do you think he's ever going to get back? Yeah, we discussed it. I think the trains left the station on him. Yeah, I, I'm I'm inclined to agree. Uh, I think uh, with Yaros, I'm still not entirely sure what his situation is going to be for the coming year. And uh, but you think 34 games in a shortened season was a decent enough sample size where you'd say, okay, he'd be in that discussion. But it's uh, Hubert Labrie. I wonder if he's related to the. Um... There was a Labrie that played defense for the Washington Capitals at one time. They retired his jersey. I thought it was Labre. What was his name? Oh, is it? Yvon Labre back in the 70s. Yeah, that sounds like him. Well done. Well done, Stevie. Yeah, I'm something. Here's something for you. Can I I go off on a tangent? Absolutely. Yvon Labre? Yep. He holds a distinction that only about, there might be 15 guys in total. He is the First, only, and last player to wear number 11 for the Washington Capitals. I believe that was, no, what number was he? He wasn't 11. Seven. Seven. There's only about 15 guys that can say that about a jersey number in a team. Yeah, a couple of them are pretty obvious, I think. There's only a few guys who've had their number seven retired? No, no, no. Their number retired, and they are the first only and last player to wear that number with that team. Oh, okay. Here's a simple one, okay? Nobody else has ever worn 99 for the Edmonton Oilers. He was the first and last and only player to wear number 99 for Edmonton. Gotcha. Makes sense? Gotcha. Mario Lemieux, first, last, and only guy to wear 66 in Pittsburgh. Makes sense. Got it. There's about um, 15 of those. Go ahead. Try some more. Try some more. Well, I guess I'd go immediately to hmm, expansion clubs of the past. Yeah, uh, Denny Potvin? No. Other players wore five with the Islanders. Mm. But there is an Islander. There is an Islander. There yeah. is. You got to go back to your first year. Obviously, it would have to be a first year Islander, right? Yeah. My knowledge of the expansion Islanders isn't real strong. Is it uh, Billy Smith? <laughs> it is. Oh, okay. Only one man ever wore 31 for the Islanders. Only one man ever wore 11 for the Buffalo Sabres. Gilles Perrault? Yeah. Only one man ever wore 11 for the Edmonton Oilers. 11 for the Oilers? Oh, Mark Messier. Yeah, of course. Only one man ever wore 99 for the Buffalo Sabres. But it's not retired. But nobody will ever wear it again because 
it's retired league wide, right? I know Will Paymont wore it. <laughs> He's the only man ever to wear 99 for the Toronto Maple Leafs. No one else will ever wear it again. He's first, last, and only because the league retired 99, right? But yes. the one in Buffalo, of course, he of the world famous comb over with a connection to the Ottawa. Oh, Senators. yeah, yeah, Rick Dudley. Yeah, he wore 99 in Buffalo. So again, he's the first, the last, and the only man ever to wear 99 for the Buffalo Sabres. That's good trivia. I like that. Yeah, Tony Esposito. First, last, and only man ever to wear 35 for the Chicago Blackhawks. That was the coolest thing in the world because nobody wore, like you talk about original vanity numbers, number 35 by a goalie. (laughs) What are you, crazy? What the? Where's that coming from? Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a a few others I'm missing, but I, I, uh, Jeremy Roenick. 97 in uh, Arizona. They retired it. Nobody else ever wore it before or since. Right. It's kind of cool. Totally cool. Yeah. Uh, some other news I want to get to. Uh, this is uh, this is more general hockey news. And there's a three-on-three professional hockey league that is sort of simmering in the background here. And it first came to light, I think, back in January. It's Eddie Johnson, uh, would be the former... NHL goalie and head coach that uh, he's actually part of the Summit Series. I guess he's the number three goalie behind Dryden and Esposito. His son, EJ, well done, is the guy behind this thing. And they've now got head coaches for this thing. And there's a a bunch of Hall of Famers involved. God Uh, is one of the coaches, Steve. God? The great Brian Trache is going to coach one of those teams. Why do you you call him God? He's he's God. Come on. Oh, you're God. I see. Islander fan. Gotcha. I thought it was a, a shot at him being arrogant or something. No. He All is right. God himself. Yeah, he's a beauty for sure. Guy Carboneau, Grant Fuhrer, Ed Johnson, John LeClaire, Joey Mullen, Larry Murphy. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty diverse group of excellent hockey players for sure. You've got uh, Angela Ruggiero in there as well who was a four-time Olympic medalist with Team USA in women's hockey. And that'll be interesting to have a a female head coach uh, in a professional hockey league that'll be dominated by males. And, you know, I I wonder if that might be something that could potentially work. It's going to be a summer league. They're not going to actually play it like a normal league would. It'll be more like golf, actually. They're going to get together nine times, like tour stops, Nine times in nine different cities having nine tournaments. What do you think of all that? And and it's prize money how you do that weekend. That's how they're paid, right? It's uh, so much if you lose in the first round or the second round or whatever. It's like a little tournament every every tour stop. Um, sounds exciting. Three on three overtime hockey. Thrilling. You know what's going to ruin it will be the aforementioned list of coaches. Once coaching gets involved in this, and maybe they need to bring in the no over and back rule because the best part of three-on-three overtime is when guys get tired towards the end and they're pressing and it gets going coast to coast. But we forget that a lot of three-on-three overtime is guys circling back, circling back, setting up, waiting, waiting. If that leaks into it, it won't get, it won't be pretty, especially with teams of only what was it? Nine skaters? It's not even nine skaters. It's six skaters, isn't yeah. it? The yeah. roster? Six skaters right. and a goal. Wow. Yeah, they're going to get tired for sure. I agree with what you're saying about the, the the tendency to, you know, give up the offensive zone and just skate the puck back out to the neutral zone just to maintain possession, get a change, whatever you got to do. But possession is everything because 
in the NHL, obviously, it's one and done. If you get scored on, the game's over. In this, I think it'll be less of an issue. I think it'll be more of an attack and less of that kind of thing because if you you know you get a goal scored on you, all is not lost. So I think it'll be less. Of, it'll still be an issue, but it won't be as big an issue. I think. Good point, Stephen. That's that makes sense. I just yeah, like somehow or other though, let's coaching may end up ruining it somehow. <laughs> it you just, never know. It, it could happen. Yeah. All right. Well, it'll be tough to ruin the good mood right now of Sens goalie prospect Kevin Mandelise. Uh, he just signed a new contract a few weeks back. We talked about that on an earlier podcast. And this past week, he was named the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League's goaltender of the year. Looks like the Sens have a good one there. He's a legitimate prospect. I, I don't know that he's a legitimate starter prospect, but I, I think he's got the potential there to, to eke out a career. Uh, let's face it, I think in the next few years, the NHL is slowly working its way back to a 1A, 1B, more of a platoon system again. So he's he's got potential there to have a career in the NHL, I think. Who the hell knows what to expect out of a goalie at 18, right? I mean, that's the reason you're not seeing oh, very yeah. many first-rounders who are goaltenders. Because what you are at 18, who knows what you're going to be when you become a decent NHL goalie or ready for the NHL, which, by the way, doesn't happen generally until you're about 25 years old. I looked at the stat. Basically, 45 NHL goalies played 30 games or more this season, and only three of those 45 are under the age of 25. Isn't that a crazy stat? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and 25. Like, we're not saying 22 here. We're saying 25. Like, uh, Hart and... Who else? Carter Hart, Mackenzie Blackwood, and Alexander Gorgiev. Just look at teenagers. Like, okay, I can think of Tom Barrasso, I, uh, I, which worked out. I can think of uh, Rick DiPietro, which <clears throat> didn't quite work out, but that's nope. probably more injuries. But how many teenage goaltenders can you remember over the years? Yeah, so that's, I think, an interesting stat that only three guys out of the 45 uh, regular playing goalies in the NHL this year, are under the age of 25. So to be analyzing what a guy like Mandelise will be uh, at 18, not an easy easy thing to do. But it's a nice segue for us into a fine piece of journalism that I read in Faces Magazine. (laughs) Well, I did put out a a Faces Magazine article. I do some Sens articles for them, and I talked about how I believe that uh, Hogberg is going to be the guy that plays the most games, gets the most starts for the Ottawa Senators for the coming season. Do you have a rebuttal to that concept? Well, I, I the, the thing about this is I see it as um, a test case, as a, you know, evidence item in the, in the career analysis of uh, Pierre Doriot. This is a kid who was drafted in 13, is that right? Correct. You had uh, Pierre Dorian came in as director of amateur scouting in 07, I want to say. He was made director of player development or player personnel probably two years later. This is a kid he would have had a lot to do with the drafting of, and then, of course, becoming assistant GM, and then GM, he would have a lot to do with his career path, with his, the kid's career path and decisions on where he played and his full development to the state that he's at now as is he or is he not an NHLer. So this is really a nice little way to analyze. Would you not agree though? It's it's 
and and Mandelize is going to be the same thing. How how do we eventually judge him? He's only 18 now, but how are the senators going to handle him between 18 and 24 or so when when maybe he gets to the show? Right. So I just think that this this will be interesting to see. Is this is at Hogberg homegrown? They drafted him. He was he was their their gem for a while there. For a couple of years, he was discussed as being he's the he's our goalie of the future more so than other guys have been called goalie of the future. Then maybe you had a little bit of a blip when the Sens made the trade with Pittsburgh and got uh, Gustafson, who was there. Ooh, look out. He's our shooting star goalie of the future. And the Sens were able to get him in the uh, Broussard deal. Yep. So was that an insurance policy? Was that maybe they were thinking Holberg's not quite there? Maybe he won't get there. But now he's here, and it'll be interesting to see is he going to be able to play, well, I don't know, 45, 50 games next season as the clear-cut number one guy? I believe he will, um, and I believe it's down to yeah. Nielsen, who's on, 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 I mean, assuming the, te- the, the whole uh, concussion thing's behind him, it's going to be Nielsen and Hogberg. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, and I feel like in a, if I'm forced to make a decision between the two, you know, neither of them has done it. Like, neither of them has actually been a starting goalie in the NHL, so... You don't have any sort of reference point from what these guys can be. Like as the, you know, definite number one. Nielsen kind of wrestled the number one role away from Anderson. And then Hogberg did the same thing after the Nielsen injury. If I'm to, to basically make a hard decision between Nielsen and Hogberg, it comes down to this. Like what you talked about, I think that the homegrown guy is always going to be favored. Because, it, you know, when a homegrown guy, a guy they drafted, a guy they developed, when they come along and look like they're NHL ready, they're going to get the benefit of the doubt because it makes the scouting staff look really, really good. And then the other factor <laughs> is, yeah. to me, Nielsen, um, he's had his chances. Like, like he's, he's now 30, and so since he turned 25, he's had lots of chances to catch somebody's eye, as in, that's our number one guy. He's been in Edmonton, St. Louis, Buffalo, Vancouver. And so I'm not saying that it can't happen. I'm just saying that if I have to choose right now, that's how I'm breaking the tie because Hogberg is only now turning 25. Clearly, DJ Smith liked the kid uh, because he gave him more starts than he did Craig Anderson down the stretch. Uh, When all things were equal, both guys are healthy. He could choose between Hogberg and Anderson down the stretch from February 1st onward. He chose Hogberg more frequently. Yeah, I think there's no doubt coming into camp, it's his job to lose. Um, everything you just said about Nielsen goes straight to the point that he appears to be a career backup. But then again, he may shine. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Hogberg's the guy. Hogberg's going to play, I would say, 65 to 70% of the games. And, and Nielsen's the backup for next season, assuming everybody's healthy all year long. I was going to close the show today, Greg, with another This Day in History scenario. We'll get to the birthdays here in a second. Okay. But uh, today, as we record this on on May 25th, uh, that would be the day of the uh, Chris Kunitz goal three years ago today in Game 7 of overtime. So I'm going to forego that nonsense, (laughs) that putrid garbage, and just ignore that segment altogether today. Well, it's interesting. I wrote it down because, you know, we communicate back and forth. For the, for the benefit of our listeners, we do communicate via email about what we're going to talk about. And I, I get out my paper and I write notes and I wrote down Kunitz goal dash whatever. <laughs> so, so, exactly. So, <laughs> I'm fine with moving on. 
All right, let's finish up with the birthdays. Music! Music, please! All right, the only one that is active is Craig Anderson, though one might argue not the send season is over. He may not be active much longer. His contract expires July 1st. He is 39 years of age this week, and uh, I think most people would uh, bet a lot of money that they're probably going to turn the page on old Craig Anderson. Yes. Do you have a little piece of happy trails? All right. A little happy trails to Craig Anderson. <laughs> you know what? We're going to close the show with, with a little happy trails, um, not just for Craig Anderson, but because, you know, it's the end of the show. Uh, also, uh, some Sens alumni, our good buddy Todd White is 45 this week. Ah, uh, Whitey. <laughs> I love him. 73-point season in the league. I mean, that's a hell of a season. Yeah. No, he, he cut out a... A niche for himself. Uh, he did. He had a great season in Atlanta, or a season and a half. Maybe was it two full seasons? He got to play down there with uh, Kovalchuk uh, riding shotgun, mm-hmm. and he he fit in very very well here with Alfie on his wing. Uh, Whitey Whitey carved out a nice career for himself. Yeah, he had a sixty point year alongside Alfie. Jason York is fifty this week. Still the most shots by a senator in one game. Nikita Filatov is thirty. He don't do rebounds, but he's in his thirties now. <laughs> That's oh, could we find that? Is that actually on tape anywhere? I don't. I, I haven't. I don't. I haven't heard it in a long time. If it is, uh, like if a, he were, if he were only a better player, it would be right up there with the practice from from. Uh, uh, who was the practice? Iverson. I don't do rebounds. Yeah, that's right. Practice. We're talking about practice, man. Not a game. But we talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? We talking about practice, man. We talking about practice. We talking about practice. We ain't talking about the game. We talking about practice, man. So there's Allen Iverson. What was he talking about again? That does it for the birthdays this week. Happy birthday, everybody. We shall take our leave. We hope you've enjoyed the program. A little happy trails to close us out. Greg, have a great week. We'll talk to you again in episode number 14. Thanks, Stevie. Have a good one. Happy trails to for being with us on the sins nation podcast new episodes every tuesday morning if you enjoyed the show and want to help the nation grow please visit sinsnationpodcast.com leave a positive rating or review share the show with other sins fans become a patreon member or subscribe for free and never miss a single episode until next time go sins go